Greetings. This is your Bible teacher coming to you from my home office in Chandler, Arizona. This will be the eighth lecture of our spring quarter. And uh, because we'll be concluding the book of Job in this lecture, it will also bring us to the end of the spring quarter in 2020. Now, I'm looking forward to greeting at least some of you in August for my summer series. I anticipate by then we'll have access to the hall or to the uh, Daily Mass Chapel and would be able to very easily and properly social distance from one another. Having said that, my summer series will be a month with Moses. Uh, four lectures dedicated to Moses, the man and friend of God. And then after that, of course, a couple of weeks off and we open up again for our fall quarter. So today, in just a moment, I'll be returning to the book of Job, chapter 38, Job's encounter with the living God. But before we do that, let's pause as we do each week for a word of prayer. And so, gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, would you with me find your way to the book of Job, and we will put in at chapter 38. Remember, chapter 38 opens with those words that bring this theatrical performance to a conclusion. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. We had an interlude prior to chapter 38, which involved a young man, remember last week, who wanted to say his two cents into the conversation? And that was the content of chapters 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, and 37. Remember, the young man's name was Elihu, and what was unique about his prolonged soliloquy was that there was no opportunity for Job to respond. Prior to the appearance of this young man, we had the three friends of Job, who will be remembered by God in the last chapter of the book of Job in just a moment. They will get their comeuppance, as you will see, each one representing a certain way of understanding why, at times, some good people have horrifically bad things happen to them. Remember, they argue from experience, their own, from the collection of others having similar experiences called tradition, and then they also argue from the perspective of religion. And there's a series of three engagements. Job speaks, they respond, Job speaks, they respond, etc., etc., etc. And then, the additional character at some point later in time is added to the theatrical script. 
and that's the content of chapters 32 through 37. And by the way, this particular young man doesn't move the argument in any manner, way, shape, or form forward. And in chapter 42, when God castigates the men who have presented to Job false understandings of why sometimes bad things happen to good people, he only mentions the first three that, that have those three opportunities to engage Job. Never mentions Elihu, right? Because obviously it's a later addition to the script. And remember, I say script because Job appears as a man in the opening chapter of the book of Job without a genealogy. I never really understood the significance of that until having a discussion once with Rabbi Michael, who is much more progressive in his sort of understanding of authorship of the Hebrew Bible, but maintains very uh, consistently that Job is, of course, a fictional character because the historical characters that we meet so often in the Hebrew Bible are introduced to us as so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so. Think about the fifth chapter, the walk through the graveyard of the book of Genesis, at a genealogy, a father to son to grandson, etc. And Job appears as a literary character without genealogy. I find that argument quite compelling. And that's why I've taught it as I have these last few weeks as a theatrical presentation. And on a stage, you're able to address issues in a way that is not possible in regular conversation. And so that's the purpose of sort of this particular play. Now, we come back to Job chapter 38, and God is going to speak. Job will get his proverbial day in court. I'll remind you that in Job chapter 19, in verses 25, 26, and 27, this is what Job had always been pining for. In Job 19, verse 25, as for me, I know that my vindicator, my redeemer, my advocate, my attorney, if you will, lives, and that he will at last stand forth upon the dust. This will happen when my skin has been stripped off and from my flesh I and from my flesh I will see God. I will see for myself with my own eyes, not another's. I will behold him. My inmost being is consumed with that longing. I know that my Redeemer lives. By the way, as an aside, Job chapter 19 verse 25 becomes for the early Christian community a predictive passage about the appearance of the Messiah. Think about it outside of the context of this particular theatrical performance. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will at last stand forth upon the dust. He'll stand on the earth. He will appear. And Jesus did and so became a fulfillment of this particular verse in the minds of the early Christian community. My point, though, is that Job had been asking for the duration of this theatrical presentation, his day in court, and now 
it has come. And so God speaks to Job, a disembodied voice, to be sure, from the stage you hear. Who is this who darkens counsel with words of ignorance? He's speaking directly to Job. Gird up your loins now like a man. I will question you, and you tell me the answers. Well, God's going to ask questions, but he's not going to allow Job to answer, because obviously Job can't answer these questions. That's the point. Where were you? Question number one. When I founded the earth, Job stands speechless, as would you and I. Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its size? Surely you know. Who stretched out the measuring line for it? Into what were its pedestal sunk, and who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, the angels, shouted for joy. Who shut the doors within the sea, when it burst forth from the womb at creation? When I made the clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling bands? When I set limits for it, and fastened the bar of its door, and I said... God speaking, thus far shall you come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your lifetime commanded the morning and shown the dawn its place for taking hold of the ends of the earth till the wicked are shaken from it? The earth is changed as clay by the seal and dyed like a garment, but from the wicked their light is withheld and the arm of pride is shattered. Have you entered into the sources of the sea, or walked on the bottom of the deep. No human has, even to our day. Have the gates of death been shown to you, or have you seen the gates of darkness? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me, if you know it all, what is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? The idea being, when a light suddenly burst forth, where does the darkness go? Because it returns when you blow out the lamp. It must be stored somewhere only God knows. These are wonderful, evocative, thoughtful images. So, what is the way to the dwelling of light? And to darkness, where is its place? Verse 20, that you may take it to its territory and know the paths to its home. You know... Because you were born then, and the number of your days is great, God speaks sarcastically. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, and seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for times of distress, and for a day of war and battle? There are innumerable, not innumerable, there are a number of examples of this in First and Second Kings, where God allows hail to fall to give advantage for the Israelites as they pursue their enemies. What is the way for the parting of the winds? Verse 24. And where the east wind spreads over the earth, or where does the east wind spread over the earth? Who has laid out a channel for the downpour and a path for the thunderstorm to bring rain to uninhabited land and unpeopled wildernesses, to drench the desolate wasteland until the desert blooms green? Has the reign of Father, who has begotten the drops of dew, out of whose womb, this is a wonderfully evocative image, comes the ice 
and who gives the hoarfrost its birth in the skies, when the waters lie covered as though with stone, that is, with ice on the surface, a, a substance that holds captive the surface of the deep. Have you tied the cords to the Pleiades or loosened the bonds of Orion, the signs of the zodiac, uh, accessible by visual accounting, move across the sky. Who orders that movement, which is an annual appearance, reappearance, and readjustment across the heavens? In verse 39, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats are born? Or watch for the birth pangs of the deer? Do you number the mouths that they must fill or know when they give birth? You don't, but God says, I do. And in verse 5, who has given the wild donkey his freedom? And who has loosed the wild ass from his bonds? I have made the wilderness his home and the salt flats his dwelling. This wild animal now scoffs at the uproar of the city. Hears no shouts of a driver any longer. He ranges the mountains for pasture and seeks out every patch of green. And will the wild ox, again, freed from its bonds, consent ever to serve you or pass the nights at your manger? Will you bind the wild ox with a rope in a furrow? And will he plow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him for his great strength and leave to him the fruits of your toil? Can you rely on him to bring in your grain and gather in the yield of your threshing floor? No, you can't even capture the wild donkey or domesticate the wild ox. So how do you think you have knowledge about why sometimes bad things happen to good people? And then another wonderful image, and it's really based on an inaccurate understanding of how ostriches reproduce, but Nevertheless, think about the ostrich in verse 13. The wings of the ostrich flap away, but her plumage is lacking in feathers because she can't fly. The plumage is beautiful. There's no argument there, but, but not sufficient to allow that bird to gain flight. And so it's almost an object of ridicule. It, it wasn't completed in creation. And she abandons her eggs on the ground. She doesn't bury them. The ancients didn't understand that those eggs are so thick, nothing could ever break the shell, and lets them warm in the sun. And by doing so, though, she forgets that a foot may crush them, that the wild beasts may trample upon them. And then she cruelly disowns her young, and her labor is useless. She has no fear, because once her young are born, they are immediately ambulatory, right? And they run all about. And so, unlike a mother hen that protects her chicks, the ostrich is a different kind of a parent in the animal kingdom. Now, despite all of this oddness about this bird that doesn't have feathers sufficient for it to be able to fly and its lack of maternal instinct, yet, when she spreads her high, when she spreads her wings high, in verse 18, she laughs at a horse and a rider. She can, the mother ostrich, outrun a horse that has a rider. And that's a mystery. How is that possible? So again, since he's mentioned the horse, he then 
references the horse that is used as an implement of military engagement? Do you give the horse his strength and clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him a quiver? Do you make him quiver like a locust while his thunderous snorting spreads terror? He paws the valley. He rejoices in his strength and charges in to battle. He, the horse, laughs at fear and cannot be terrified. He does not retreat from the sword. Around him rattles the quiver, flashes the spear and the javelin. Frenzied and trembling, he devours the ground. He does not hold back at the sound of the trumpet. At the trumpet's call, he cries, Aha! And even from afar, he scents the battle. The roar of the officers and the shouting. It is by your is it by your understanding that the hawk soars or that he spreads his wings toward the south? Does the eagle fly up at your command? Build its nest up on high. There are so many examples of, of God's power and authority and mystery in nature. And and you can't comprehend any of them, Job. How can you comprehend the bigger questions in life? Now, the Lord continues to speak to Job. Will, in verse 1 of chapter 40, one who argues with the Almighty, be corrected. Will you be willing to stand there and hear me out? Let him who would instruct God give an answer. And Job speaks. He answers the Lord. And he said, look at me. I realize, I recognize, I acknowledge I am of little account. What can I answer you? So I put my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once. I, I will not reply twice, but I will do so no more. I want to hear what you have to say. That's the most important thing. You speak and I will listen. So now for the second time, round two. The Lord says again in verse seven, gird up your loins now like a man. I will question you and you will tell me the answers. Would you refuse to acknowledge my right to do this? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Do you know the answers to the questions you're asking? Have you an arm like that of God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? Can you adorn yourself with grandeur and majesty and clothe yourself with glory and splendor? Can you let loose the fury of your wrath. Can you look at everyone who is proud and bring them down? Can you look at everyone who is proud and humble them? Can you tear down the wicked in their place? Can you bury them in the dust together in the hidden world? Can you imprison them? If so, if you can, if you're capable, I'm reading between the lines, but that's necessary here, then will I also praise you for your own right hand. If you can do any of those things, can save you. But if you can't do any of those things, and Job can't, then you can't save yourself. You have to trust in me. You have to rely on me. And two more wonderful images are presented. Now, one is going to be imaged through an animal that was at one time quite populous in the Jordan River in the Abrahamic period, the other as well, the hippopotamus and the crocodile. Now, these were also mythical creatures 
in antiquity, uh, suggestive of uh, cosmic forces of evil. And, and the waters were always considered perilous anyway. The waters of the Jordan, no exception. The waters of the oceans, most certainly. And so the behemoth and the leviathan, the hippopotamus and the crocodile or alligator were considered very dangerous. By the way, in Africa in our own day, there are more deaths by far from attacks by hippopotami than by alligators and crocodiles combined. Uh, hippopotami are very dangerous. And again, they're in the Jordan River. So these animals are going to be described and then also attached to sort of cosmic forces of evil. And basically, God is saying, I control, by example, these two ancient feared mythical beasts that are imaged from the natural order. So we'll keep that in mind. So in verse 15, you'll hear the description. Chapter 40, look at the behemoth whom I made along with you as part of the creation on day six, who feeds on grass like an ox, the hippopotamus does. See the strength in his loins, the power in the sinews of his belly. He carries his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are like cables, his bones like tubes of bronze. His limbs are like iron rods. He is the first of God's ways. Only his maker can approach him with a sword, for the mountains bring him produce, meaning grass, and all the wild animals make sport there. Yet under lotus trees he lies in coverts of the reedy swamp, that is, underwater. And he breathes, as you know, the hippopotamus does, with the nostrils above the surface of the water. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. All about him are the poplars in the wadi. If the river grows violent, he's not disturbed. He is tranquil, though the Jordan surges about his mouth. And who can capture him by his eyes, which also rise up with his nostrils just on the surface of the water, or pierce his nose with a trap? You don't know what you're getting into. There's a lot more hippopotamus underneath those eyes and nostrils. Can you lead Leviathan about with a hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Now, Leviathan. Leviathan is a different animal. It's not the hippopotamus, but now the Jordan River crocodile, which bears some similarity to the hippopotamus in the way that it also moves on land and in the water. And uh, its nose, nostrils, and eyes appear as well. Can you lead Leviathan? about with a hook, verse 25, or tie down his tongue with a rope. And that's the way you subdue an alligator, a crocodile. You, you, you wrap a rope around its nostrils. Can you put a ring in his nose or pierce through his cheek with a gaff? Will he then plead with you time after time or address you with tender words? Will he make a covenant with you that you may have him as a slave forever? Can you play with him as with a bird? Can you tie him up for your little girls to sport with? Will traders bargain for him? Will the merchants divide him up? Can you fill his hide with barbs or his head with fish spears? Once you lay but a hand upon him, no need to recall any other conflict because once you touch an animal like that, all bets are off. And these were terrifying images of these animals that would drown you in the waters of the Jordan River if given opportunity to do so. 
Whoever might vainly hope to do so, chapter 41, need only see him to be overthrown or to change his mind. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then dares stand before me? You, you can't imagine trying to capture a crocodile. How can you imagine that you can stand before me? I created this beast. In verse 5, who can strip off his outer garment? alligator skin or penetrate his double armor who can force open the doors of his face close to his terrible teeth rows of scales are on his back tightly sealed together they are fitted so close to each other that no air can come between them so joined to one another that they hold fast and cannot be parted and when he sneezes again from the surface of the waters of the jordan calm uh, when he sneezes expelling air it appears like the mist that would imagine smoke when he sneezes. Light flashes forth. His eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. And you've seen the eyelids of alligators. There's three lenses so that the eyes have an ability to see in a way that is quite unique. And out of his mouth go forth torches. Sparks of fire leap Forth from his nostrils, when he sneezes, comes smoke as from a seething pot or a bowl, like steam, because of the force of the breath exhaled. And so the idea was, perhaps this is a fire-breathing sea or river monster. It's just an image evoked from the way that air is exhaled with such force. In verse 14, strength abides in his neck. And power leaps before him. The folds of his flesh stick together. It is cast over him and immovable. His heart is cast as hard as stone, cast as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the gods are afraid. When he crashes down, they fall back. Should a sword reach him, it will not avail. Nor will spear, dart, or javelin bounces off. He regards iron as chaff and bronze as rotten wood. No arrow will put him to flight. Sling stones used against him like straw. Clubs he regards as straw. He laughs at the crash of the spear. Under him are sharp pottery fragments shredding a threshing sledge upon the mire. And when he takes you down to the depths, he spins you around so you become disoriented. And he makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a perfume bottle behind him, he leaves a shining path. Would you think the deep had white hair? Upon the earth there is none like him. He was made fearless. He looks over all who are haughty. He is king over all the proud beasts. So again, God says to Job, if I can create these two animals, the hippopotamus, the crocodile, and they are fearsome in every manner, way, shape and form, then who are you, you see, to stand before me and ask these questions? And the questions, of course, why did you subject me, a good man, to such horrific tortures? And we know why. We know why. We know why because of chapter one, to prove to Satan that God is God and Satan is going to lose the battle. Now, Job will respond to the Lord in chapter 42, the last chapter of this theatrical presentation. 
I know that you, speaking directly to God, can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be hindered. Who is this that I'm sorry, who is this who obscures counsel with ignorance? I have spoken, but I did not understand. Things too marvelous to me or for me I spoke about, which I did not know. Listen, and I will speak. I will question you, and you tell me the answers. That's what I said. But here say, I have heard of you, but now my eye has seen you. I thought I understood who I was in relation to you. I thought I could stand in your presence and make my case before you. My advocate would stand before me and plead my cause. But now I realize you're God and I'm not. And there is no easy answer to the question. Sometimes bad things happen to good people because sometimes bad things happen to good people. Therefore, he says, I disown what I have said and repent in dust and ashes. Now, much ink has been spilled about that last line. I disown what I have said and repent in dust and ashes. To repent means to return. And so when he disowns what he said, what he's disowning is his claim that he needed opportunity to stand before God to plead his case and basically argue in the celestial court, uh, what are you doing to me? He's repenting of that. He's saying, I was a fool to think that I could stand before you and standing before you would be able to argue my case. He's not admitting here that he's a sinner deserving of all of those punishments. And you'll see that in a moment because in a moment, God's going to turn to his three friends and say, you three are fools and you need to offer sacrifice for your sinfulness. And you need to ask Job to pray for you because Job's a righteous man and that never changes. So don't allow verse six to undermine the entirety of the book of Job. Therefore, I disown what I have said and repent in dust and ashes. He's repenting of what he had said in this bold declarative manner that he wants his day in court because he's going to plead his case and find himself vindicated, right? That isn't going to happen. Now, after the Lord had spoken, verse 7, these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, the man of experience his own, my anger blazes against you and your two friends. What happened to the young man? Again, a later addition to the cast. And so he's not mentioned in this original version. You have not, in verse 7, spoken rightly concerning me, as has my servant Job. Job's right. Job has figured it out. It's a mystery, but he's closer to an answer than you are. And the mystery is sometimes bad things happen to good people. And sometimes good things happen to bad people. But at the end of the day, I'm God and you're not. So you now take seven bulls, the three of you, and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves and let my servant Job pray for you. Because you see, he's a righteous man. To him, I will show favor and not punish your folly, for you have not spoken rightly concerning me, as has my servant Job. 
right? And so that's the key. Job gets it. He's a righteous man. When Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar went and did as the Lord had commanded them, the Lord then showed favor to Job. The Lord also restored the prosperity of Job after he had prayed for his friends. The Lord even gave to Job twice as much as he had before. So his life was restored and then again restored. He had twice as much. And all his brothers and sisters came to him and all his former acquaintances and they dined with him in his house. They consoled and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. Again, this can happen in a theatrical presentation. Thus, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his earlier days. Now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, that's 2,000 animals, and 1,000 she-donkeys. He also had seven more sons and three daughters. The first daughter he called Jema. Ma'a, the second Ke'esa, and the third Karen Hapuk. These are all names that in Hebrew express the way that Job felt about his relationship with God. The first daughter's name is Dove. The second daughter's name is Precious Perfume. And uh, the third daughter's name is Cosmetic Jar, uh, where this Precious Perfume would be collective and saved as a form of monetary gain. So, in all the land, in verse 15, no other women were as beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers, which was unique at the time. This was well before the daughters of Zalafahad, right at the end of the book of Numbers petitioned Moses so that they could receive their father's inheritance upon his death if they agreed to marry within their tribal clan. This will take place as we enter the land at a later date, but we are in the time of Abraham 500 years before the appearance of Moses. Because after this, in the narrative, Job lived 140 years and he saw his children and his grandchildren, and even his great-grandchildren. And then Job died, old and full of years. And that brings us to the end of this first book of the collection we call the Wisdom Literature. And it is wisdom literature, and has been engaging and sometimes tedious to make our way through, but we've accomplished that fact. And that brings this eighth lecture of the summer, no, I'm sorry, the spring quarter, to a conclusion. So you won't see the lectures next week, but you will be able, obviously, to continue to access the Gospel Comes to Life reflection on a weekly basis. I hope you do. I really enjoy putting those together, and they'll be on the same website that you find this podcast on today. So, until I see you in August or in September, or wherever I see you, I never tire of reminding you what a great student you are. Don't forget that. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to these lectures and pray that God will bless you with health, strength, courage, and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Good day and God bless.